GFC, you can have your seats. Grateful to be with you tonight. Uh, please open your Bibles to 3 John. 3 John, as Matt said, we conclude our series tonight in the epistles of John. And as you're turning there, uh, I want to talk to you about a Trojan. We don't like Trojans around here. And uh, neither did the Greeks somewhere around 1100 BCE. It was thousands of years ago when, much like the Bruins of today, uh, the Greeks were at war with the Trojans in a famous conflict called the Trojan War. The Greeks were trying to besiege the, the Trojan hub, which was this famous city of Troy, and as the tenth year of the war came around, the Greeks had made little to no success. It seemed like the city's defenses were just too strong, and the Greek soldiers were quickly losing resolve and hope of winning this war. And so they gathered up their troops and departed from the city. At least that's what it looked like to the Trojans. You see, before fully surrendering, the, the Greeks built this giant wooden horse. And they left it at the city gates as an offering to their gods, signaling their resignation from this 10-year-long war. And as the Greeks sort of brought out this horse to the city gates, they walked away from the city in droves, went to their, their boats to sail home, and everybody in the city of Troy began to celebrate their victory. They brought the horse in, and they threw a party because they had uh, outlasted the Greeks in this siege. Well, that very same night, when night fell, the Greeks poured out of this famously called Trojan horse. In the cover of night, they emerged, and Greek special forces flooded the city of Troy. Meanwhile, the, the boats that were sailing away had turned around and began to attack from the outside as well. And in the blink of an eye, the city of Troy had fallen. The Trojans had lost the war, just like they did to the Bruins a few weeks ago. That's the, the famous story of the Trojan horse. And whether or not it's actually true is disputed. But regardless, it's a classic story of the sort of damage and, and the, 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 the havoc an undetected enemy can unleash. Knowing whether or not something or someone is on your side can spell victory or defeat for you in the blink of an eye. It's why militaries and, and sports teams wear uniforms so that they know who's a teammate and who's an opponent. You see, knowing who's your friend and who's your foe is one of the most important pieces of information in any battle, in any competition, in anything that has any kind of opposition. And when it comes to the gospel, the Bible is very, very clear about who's a friend and who's an enemy. When it comes to the truth about Jesus and the mission of Christians and the mission of the church, Scripture is very clear who is an ally and who is the opposition. The way 3 John talks about this is by talking about the truth. The word truth is all over this little letter, and John makes it crystal, crystal clear who the friends and the enemies of the truth are. And so for us, I think 
3 John will, will really help us not make the same mistake as the city of Troy. It, it's going to help us to sniff out opposition to the gospel, sniff out opposition to the truth, and it's going to show us who we ought to be linking arms in ministry with. And if you're like me, uh, you may find as we look at 3 John that there might be more opposition uh, more rebellion to the name and the mission of Jesus in your own heart than you might have thought. Third John will, will help you to know who the friend and who the enemy of the truth is. And as John says in Third John verse 8, it's going to help you not to oppose the truth, but to be a fellow worker for the truth. Tonight we're going to look at Third John under three simple headings, but first, Let's just read this short little letter, letter together. Third John, beginning in verse 1. John writes, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you, greet the friends each by name. The first heading we're going to look at 3 John under together is truth's greatest friend. Truth's greatest friend. We're going to see that in verses 1 through 8. In a word, truth's greatest friend is love. Truth's greatest friend is love. And, and we're actually going to see that in two different ways in these eight verses. In verses one through four, we're going to see John's love for Gaius. And then in verses five through eight, we're going to see Gaius's love for the brothers. And we're going to see how truth and love go hand in hand together. Let's start with verse one. John says, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Right away, we are introduced to this man named Gaius, and he is the original recipient of this last letter of John. There's other Gaiuses in the New Testament, but everything we know about this Gaius is here in 3 John. First thing that we learn about him, 
is that Gaius is loved by John. John opens his letter with this especially affectionate greeting. Look at verse 1. John says, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. In fact, for the rest of this letter, John won't even use Gaius' name. John will only call him beloved. And so right away, this letter takes on this tone of of extreme warmth and and loving affection. In just about a week here, you're going to you're going to be here at GOC, and it will be Christmas Graham's galore, full of this fondness and this warmth and this affection for each other. And for John, that's what he's doing in this letter. It's full of this fondness and, and affection, and, and specifically, it's Christian affection. What do I mean by Christian affection? Well, the end of verse 1 says, whom I love in truth. In truth, it's a tiny phrase, but so important. What, what John is saying here, just like Matt helped us see in 2 John, is that Christian affection is, is ultimately founded upon their shared confession of the truth of, of who Jesus is. In fact, uh, turn in your Bibles over to 1 John with me. 1 John, and just look at chapter 1 and the first few verses there. 1 John chapter 1. Uh, this is John's sort of fundamental summary of what he means by the word truth. 1 John 1, look at verse 1. He says, that which we heard from the beginning, which we, uh, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Uh, this is the truth that Jesus was a, a real living human being. And verse 2, that he manifested and proclaimed the, the life and the glory and the salvation of God himself because he was God himself. And then look at verse 3. 1 John 1, 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And so John says in in 1 John 1 that the truth about Jesus, his his humanity and his deity and and his proclamation of life, 1 John 1, 3, is so that we might have fellowship together. It's it's for the purpose of, of relating to one another on the basis of truth, right? So it's not on the basis of, of interests or hobbies. It's not on the basis of, of social status or ethnicity or whether or not we're an extrovert or an introvert. It's on the basis of the truth of Jesus. And so if we turn back to 3 John and look at verse 1 again, we see that 1 John 1, 3 is being accomplished in 3 John 1. John's goal in 1 John 1 is actually being lived out between him and Gaius. John and Gaius share this warm fellowship, this affection, and it's not because they both like basketball or something. It's because they share this common confession of Jesus as the saving Son of God. Everybody here, I want you to to join with me in thinking about a Christian who you just don't really get along with. Picture their face, think about their name, 
Don't say their name out loud. That would get weird. But, but picture their face. Think about them. Think of this person you just don't click with. As you think about this Christian, can you genuinely say that they are beloved to you? That you love them? It doesn't mean that, that you have to hang out with them 24-7. It doesn't mean that you can't have closer friends than them, but if it's maybe a little bit strange for you to think of them warmly and affectionately, then you've got to remember that Jesus died for them. Jesus did not live and die and rise again for you to be consumeristic about people. Because that's not the kind of love that is grounded in gospel truth. Look at verses 2 through 4 for an example of, of this good kind of love. Verses 2 through 4 show us that, that verse 1 isn't just some throwaway greeting, but that it's meaningful. John says in verse 2, I pray that all may w- go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. I, I love that. I love how real and how personal that is. He cares about Gaius' whole person. We could spend more time there, but look on at verses 3 and 4. John says, I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. John rejoices to see Christians walking faithfully, and he expresses that joy here because he received this testimony, this report of some kind that Gaius was walking in the truth. And when John hears that, it's almost like he can't contain his joy. Verse 3, he didn't just rejoice, John rejoiced greatly. Verse 4, John couldn't say it more strongly. He says, I have no greater joy. I mean, can you remember the last time that you were so excited about something that you kind of like, like involuntarily like shouted in happiness or or jumped up, or fist pumped, or something. I remember uh, the last wedding I went to. It was my college roommate who was getting married, and as the ceremony was coming to a close, the officiant said those long-awaited words, you may now kiss the bride. And in that moment, there wasn't a single person at that wedding who was not clapping, and shouting, and cheering. And nobody, like, told us to clap, right? Like, nobody was like, this is the time to celebrate. Like, like we, just, we just responded that way. It's how we naturally reacted with this joy, and that's what's happening in verses 3 through 4. This isn't a wedding, but it's the same sort of overflowing excitement. You see, the context of, of 3 John is that John sent some, some missionaries, some teachers uh, that passed through Gaius' church on their journey. Verse 7 identifies them as people who went out for the sake of the name, meaning the name of Jesus. And so these gospel-preaching missionaries are, are eventually reconnected with John, and John wants to know how their journey's going. And so John says, how's it going? And, and they're like, man, it's been crazy. We've been preaching the gospel, uh, but, but there's been persecution, and, and there's been false teachers, but the church keeps on growing, and, and there's been so many churches who are helping us, so many Christians who are helping us. You know this guy named Gaius by any chance? And I can just imagine John's eyes lighting up when he heard the name of his old friend. 
I can imagine him jumping up and shouting for joy when he heard that Gaius is walking faithfully in the truth, faithfully supporting gospel ministry. That's a great picture of what it looks like to love in truth. John's greatest joy is not to get a job offer or to advance his career or to even hear of of Gaius advancing his new career. It's to hear about Gaius's faithfulness to Jesus. As I was thinking about this, I was so challenged with how I could grow in this kind of love. And, and because I was challenged, now, now you get to be too. This is going to sting a little bit, to, to look into our own souls and our own hearts, but it's so important that we recalibrate our idea of love on God's terms. Remember that person you were thinking of just a little while ago? That, that one Christian you just don't quite click with? Would you give up the joy of your med school acceptance just to hear that he or she is walking with Jesus? Does your job offer or your internship or your greatest achievements in this world, does it bring you more joy than it would to simply hear of a friend who is walking faithfully with Jesus? Do you see, we need to recalibrate our love according to the truth so that our greatest joy is when the truth is at work. See, the world's love is so cheap compared to that. The world's love is so obsessed with worldly accomplishment, worldly success, especially our own, and they all fade in the blink of an eye. And don't get me wrong, I I look forward to hearing of all the the good stuff in your life, but, but I pray that all of our hearts would be so tuned to the gospel and the glory of God that the thing we look forward to most when we catch up with each other 5, 10, 15 years from now is that we are walking with Christ. I hope that, that we are rejoicing for each other first and foremost because we worship Jesus in truth. That, that connectedness of love and truth is something John displays here in verses 1 through 4. And we see it also in verses 5 through 8 through Gaius' love for the brothers. Let's read just verses 5 and 6 to start. John says, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. We just talked about the context here. Gaius is receiving these missionaries sent by John, and verse 5 tells us that Gaius uh, exerted uh, effort to serve these missionaries, and then in verse 6, because of that effort, these missionaries testified to Gaius's love. And John highlights one detail here in verse 5 that is so remarkable, so remarkable. Look at the end of verse 5. Who were the recipients of this love from Gaius? End of verse 5. These brothers, strangers as they are. You see, Gaius, when he met these missionaries, he probably knew about as much about them as you do right now. All he knew was that they were brothers, and verse 7, that they had gone out for the sake of the name. In other words, all he knew was that these people were Christians who were spreading the message of the gospel. That is it. And you know what? 
That's all he needed to know. Gaius didn't care if they were rich or poor or famous or nobodies. All Gaius needed to know was that they confessed the same truth he confessed. And so Gaius received them as his own family. And John continues, and then he encourages Gaius to excel still more. Look at the end of verse 6. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. Keep it up, John says. Send them off to proclaim this truth in a way that God would approve of. Why? Why should Gaius keep on giving up his resources, his efforts, his own possessions for these strangers? Verse 7. For, or because, they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. These missionaries were leaving their homes behind to preach to the gospel to unbelievers. And they were committed to receiving no support from these unbelievers, or Gentiles as John calls them. They did this so that there was no misunderstanding as to why, why missionaries were, they, were there. They wanted no sort of distraction to their message. They weren't asking unbelievers for money or They weren't trying to freeload off of these people. They weren't trying to get famous. They were simply preaching the gospel. And so these missionaries were fully, totally dependent on Christians along the way to support them with basic life necessities. That's why in verse 8, John exhorts and encourages Gaius one last time to support them because of their needs. And then at the end of verse 8, we come to this just beautiful beautiful phrase as John gives one last reason for Gaius to support them. End of verse 8, John says, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. You guys know about the all-star games, NBA, NFL? Andre knows. No disrespect, but Sydney knows better. She's like America's all-star. Anyways, you guys know about the All-Star Game, right? Uh, basically, the, the best players from the league are, are selected from every team to sort of be in this exhibition match. The game itself doesn't really matter, but to be recognized as an All-Star is a high honor. It means you're the best of the best. Well, play along with me for a second. If you had to think of some New Testament All-Stars, who you got? I'm thinking like the Apostle Paul, right? It's got to be in there. Protege Timothy, probably in there. How about Luke? I think, uh, I think you guys would like Luke. Bruins would really like Luke. He was a, a historian, a medical doctor, a gospel writer, wrote the book of Acts as well. That dude's an all-star for sure. You know what all those guys have in common? Paul, Timothy, Luke. The New Testament calls them all this exact same phrase that we see in verse 8. Fellow workers. And not only them, but the gospel writer Mark is in that category. Titus is in that category. Epaphroditus from Philippians is in that category. This fellow worker category is one that is full of, of giants of the faith. It's a category full of these New Testament 
Hall of Fame type Christians who we look up to and who we are grateful for and who we seek to imitate as they imitate Christ. And John says that your simple and quiet acts of love put you in that same category. What an honor. Don't misunderstand me. When we think all-star in the NFL or something, we think glamour and glory and fame. But when we think all-star in the kingdom of God, we need to think selfless and humble and meek servant. Make no mistake about it, John is saying you have an opportunity to be great. But great in the kingdom of God is to be low. To be first in the kingdom of God is to be last. I think For some here, this ought to be a tremendous encouragement. And for others, it should be quite convicting. Because we tend to to glorify one kind of ministry over another sometimes, don't we? We tend to think that those up front or those with big platforms or those with eloquence are more useful or more spiritual. Maybe you've looked down on other Christians before because they can't articulate something as well as you can. Or maybe you've struggled with thinking that that you aren't as useful as somebody else in the kingdom of God. Either way, you need to know that God's economy works differently. Gaius was never commended for a title or for a role. He was commended for his love. And in God's economy, love is the greatest currency. Love is the most valuable thing. And so whether you are preaching to thousands from John MacArthur's pulpit, or whether you are just giving a missionary a bite to eat, you are a fellow worker for the truth if you are doing it in love. It was William Carey who, before bringing the gospel to India, said, I will go down into the pit if you will hold the rope. Some of you I pray, will go down into the pit and bring the gospel to those who have never heard the name of Jesus. But if you don't, I pray that you will have burn marks on your hands from holding the rope. I pray that you will have hearts that are eager and ready to give and to support gospel ministry. That's what it looks like to be a fellow worker for the truth. You see, in John's love for Gaius, we see love as this companion to the truth, kind of joined at the hip. And then in Gaius's love for these brothers, we see love as this ally for the truth, this support, this teammate with the truth, enabling it to go forth into the world. Love is the friend of truth, but Third John also shows us truth's greatest foe. Truth's greatest foe, that's your second heading, and we're going to see that in verses 9 through 10. Let's just read verse 9 together to start. John says, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. It was early afternoon in March of 2012 when Tom Scanlon's house was burned to the ground a few miles outside of Denver, Colorado. Tom was safe, but the damage was horrific. By the time the fire was put out, 1,400 acres had burned, 22 other homes had been destroyed, 
and three people were killed. Perhaps the most shocking part of this entire ordeal was that the fire was intentional. It wasn't criminal. It wasn't arson. But it was intentional. A few days before the tragedy, Colorado State Forest Service executed what is known as a prescribed burn. Prescribed burn is when you burn a a particularly dry or, or overgrown patch of land, and the hope is that this controlled burn would preempt an accidental fire that would do more damage. The only problem was that they lost control of what was supposed to be a controlled burn. Fire is like that, isn't it? It has the potential for great good or for for great bad. It can protect people or it can kill people. It can keep you warm or it can burn you. Well, in verses 9 and 10, we see something kind of similar. We see that in some ways the friend of truth can also be its enemy. Truth's greatest friend is love, and truth's greatest foe is also love. But love for yourself. Truth's enemy is a twisted and and a distorted and a destructive version of love. And it is love for self. Here we see it in a man named Diotrephes. John identifies him in verse 9. He says, Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first. Sheesh. How would you, how would you like that to be your reputation? And John, in, in this passage, is emphasizing this trait. John actually puts that description of Diotrephes before his actual name in Greek. It doesn't sound quite right in English, but the sentence would sound something like this. I have written something to the church, but the one who likes to put himself first Diotrephes, does not acknowledge our authority. It's almost as if John is trying to tell us that this trait about him is more important than his actual name. It tells us everything we need to know about him. He likes to put himself first. This description, this this description of likes to put himself first is only found here in the New Testament, and it's this unique kind of compound word. John smashes together the word for love and the word for first or firstness. Sometimes it's translated preeminence in the Bible. And so Diotrephes is a lover of firstness. He's a lover of his own preeminence. And so Diotrephes loved all right. But he loved to be first. And before we see how this affected his actions, I want you to see why this is such a heinous offense. Listen to Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. This is Paul writing, speaking of Jesus. Paul says, And he, Jesus, is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he, Jesus, might be preeminent. That word for preeminent is the exact same word translated first, in Diotrephes' case. So what was Diotrephes' problem? He wanted to dethrone Jesus. He loved to be where only Jesus deserved to be. And so, and he, he thought he had the right to displace Jesus. He thought he had the right to, to usurp the throne of Christ. And so one commentator calls him a sinister character. 
And I think you're going to agree when you see what that kind of heart caused him to do. John pinpoints five sins of Diotrephes, and it is quite the wicked picture. Number one, at the end of verse nine, he does not acknowledge our authority. Apparently, John had written some letter to the church that Gaius and Diotrephes attended. Uh, We don't have that letter today, but whatever was in it, John was writing to the church as a leader, and Diotrephes opposed it, not acknowledging the shepherding of John and the leaders of the early church. And so John says in verse 10, if he's able to be there in person, he's going to address this problem of of rebellion. And then verse 10 continues, Diotrephes' sin has developed from not just not acknowledging leadership, but it's developed into the second sin of Diotrephes being slanderous, gossiping, lying about leadership. The end of verse 10 says, He's talking wicked nonsense against us. John continues, he's not just against us, but he's also against the missionaries that you, Gaius, have been sacrificing for, the ones that you've been loving. He refuses, number three, to welcome them. He rejects them from gathering with the church. He refuses to host them in his home or to give them food or a place to sleep. And it gets worse. The fourth sin is that Diotrephes, at the middle-ish end of verse 10, he also stops those who want to welcome the brothers. You see, it's not enough for Diotrephes to reject these missionaries himself. He has to stop others from welcoming them as well. And number five, the end of verse 10, he puts them out of the church. Diotrephes is so consumed with his authority, with his influence, that he is trying to church discipline and excommunicate believers who are simply trying to welcome and support these missionaries. See why Diotrephes can be called a sinister character? He was disrespecting godly leaders. He gossiped. He refused to show hospitality, stopped others from showing hospitality, and he excommunicated believers who were. And before you think that you would never do something like that, remember that all of this evil comes down to the fact that he loved to put himself first. GOC, isn't that a temptation we are familiar with? Have you ever thought about the fact that your lovelessness and your selfishness aren't just bad because they make you a bad friend? They are bad because they are fundamentally opposed to the truth of Jesus. You see, Diotrephes' love of self became an inhibitor to the proclamation of Jesus. It became an obstacle to the gospel going forth into the world. I think we so often think about opposition to Jesus and opposition to the gospel as as false teachers or or heresies or bad doctrine. And and that is wise. That's what 2 John was all about. But here in 3 John, we see another enemy. And this enemy is not doctrinal. It's not some theological controversy. It's an enemy that is in all of us. And it's the selfish pride that loves to be first. Let me say it this way. Bad doctrine is as dangerous to the church 
as your pride and your selfishness hidden in your heart. I find it so compelling that the one time John identifies a threat to the church by name, it's not for heresy or for false teaching, it's for selfishness. GOC, selfishness and pride are as dangerous to your spiritual health as false teaching. I realize that most of you aren't actively cold-shouldering missionaries or trying to excommunicate fellow church members. But we are vulnerable to the same kind of temptations as diatrophies at a heart level, right? And we are certainly not above the sins of this man. And so when you recognize that temptation for prominence or for recognition, that temptation for some kind of role in the church and not a desire for the work of ministry, then please take heed to John's rebuke of Diotrephes and battle that sin. If you want to know how servant-hearted you are, look at how you respond when you're actually treated like a servant. Diotrephes couldn't take it. He had to be first, but the call for the Christian is to be last. One last thing on this point. I love that John is the one writing this. Because John struggled with that idea of firstness at one point, didn't he? He was the one who asked Jesus, hey Jesus, can I, can I sit on your right hand in glory? Can I, can I get that seat of prominence? Well, here it's so clear that John has come a long way. And I would bet that, that John grew because he spent a lot of time with Jesus. And the more time he spent with Jesus, the more he saw Jesus washing people's feet. The more he saw Jesus giving up nights of sleep to pray for people. And I bet John really got it when he saw Jesus in the most selfless, and humble act of all, that though he was the son of God, perfect and blameless, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, Jesus came to earth as the incarnate God, perfect in every way, yet he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped at. He didn't count firstness with God as a thing to be grasped at, but instead he humbled himself. Instead he, he pursued death. He pursued death on a cross. After living a perfect life, he became the servant of all, perfectly obeying God, perfectly loving others, and he gave that perfect life up for you. He felt compassion on sinners. And he died in the place of sinners and was raised for their justification. Also that if sinners like you and I would turn from our sin and place our faith in that Jesus, we would be forgiven and reconciled to God. This gospel, this good news that saves you is the same one that sanctifies you. And so if you know you struggle with this sin of pride, would you follow the footsteps of John? Would you spend time with Jesus? Because if you do, he will root out that pride in you day by day until he perfects you in glory. 
this prideful love of self is one of truth's greatest enemies. And before we spiral into sin like Diotrephes did, let's sit at the foot of the cross and learn real love from Jesus. Truth's greatest friend is love. We saw that in verses 1 through 8. Truth's greatest foe, you could say, is self-love, and we saw that in verses 9 through 10. And now we're actually going to hand the microphone over to truth itself. We're going to let truth speak for itself. We've been talking a lot about the truth, how you and I ought to respond to the truth, but now it's time to hear what the truth thinks about you. In verses 11 through 15, we're going to call truth's final word. Truth's final word. Let's just read verse 11 first. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. With the negative example of of Diotrephes fresh on his mind, John exhorts Gaius, do not imitate evil like Diotrephes, but imitate good. He's saying, Gaius, I I know you're not a Diotrephes kind of guy, but look, you, you do spend a lot of time with him because you guys go to the same church. And so be careful not to imitate, not to, to mimic his evil. Do not follow his pattern. Instead, you ought to imitate good. And notice how John is, is very careful here to identify that the, the doing of good is the evidence of salvation and not the means to salvation. He appeals to to Gaius' identity as as a new creation born of God. John says to to imitate good because that's what those who are from God do. On the other hand, whoever does evil has not seen God. Uh, They they don't know God. Their eyes are blinded to Christ. But since you, Gaius, uh, since you know and you love God and, and you know and you love Jesus, you ought to live like it. That's how we should think of of our pursuit of of doing good, of imitating good. It's not to work for something, but it's to to live out this life we've been given through faith. John says, do not imitate evil, but imitate good, because whoever does good is from God. And in that statement of fact, in that, that statement of reality, whoever does good is from God, whoever does evil has not seen God, Truth itself is, is speaking up. Truth itself is grabbing the microphone. So far, we've seen that, that one man in Gaius has this selfless love. He, ha- he has a love that is for other people, and so he is supporting the truth. And you have this other man on the other side named Diotrephes who is opposing the truth. He is, he is engaged in this self-centered love, and so it's as if Gaius is here, Diotrephes is here, and in, they're in this, this tug of war. They're, they're on opposite corners of a boxing ring, and in verse 11, the truth speaks, and the truth declares who is on the winning side. The truth itself declares who is in God's corner. And if there was ever any doubt, verse 11 is this crystal clear verdict from the truth that the one who does good, the one who loves with selflessness and humility for the sake of Jesus, the Gaiuses of the world, are on God's side. And those living for themselves, the the ones who, 
who love only themselves for their own sake, for their own glory, the diatrophieses of the world, they are completely blind to God. They don't even know him. And what an encouragement that is for Gaius to know that despite all the, the conflict and strife going on in his church, despite all the attacks from Diotrephes, truth gets the final word. Truth gets to slam the gavel down and give the verdict, and truth says that Diotrephes' selfishness will fail like all those who do not know God. The truth continues to speak and, and give encouragement to Gaius in verse 12. Look at verse 12. John introduces us to a man named Demetrius. This is probably the guy, by the way, who was delivering the letter. And John is commending him. And listen to how John describes him. This is incredible. Verse 12. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. Stop right there. In other words, the truth itself, this eternal, unchanging truth, gives its stamp of approval to Demetrius along with everybody else who knows him. This is basically saying that what the truth said in verse 11, whoever's doing good is from God, it's saying that Demetrius is the kind of guy I'm talking about. And John and his fellow leaders align themselves with that truth and commend Demetrius as well at the end of verse 12. We, we also add our testimony, John says. And you know that our testimony is true. You see, truth in these verses is opening its mouth and it's, it's, it's getting the final word in this conflict between guys like Gaius and guys like Diotrephes. And it decisively commends men like Gaius and Demetrius, but decisively condemns other men like Diotrephes. You see, those who uphold the truth in love are aligned with this victorious will of God, and they cannot fail. That is a wonderful hope for every believer in your efforts for things like evangelism. You cannot fail. You are on God's side. It's a great encouragement in your fight against sin, in your commitment to the, to the church, in this increasingly hostile world to Christianity you can know that you are on God's side. Truth will get the final word. And it's with that tone of, of encouragement and camaraderie and, and triumph that John concludes his letter in verses 13 through 15. John just cannot wait to be with them in person. I'm sure he can't wait to hear more stories of faithfulness. I'm sure he, he, he's eager to to restore peace, verse 15, to this strife-filled congregation. He says, I had much to write to you. I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. And I don't want you to miss this at the very end of verse 15. John says, greet the friends each by name. I love how tender that is, how, how warm and affectionate that is. That is love. John specifically says, guys, don't just gather a bunch of the, the homies and, and say, John says hi, he misses you guys. No, no, John says, I want you 
to individually go to each member in your church, greet them by name, and send them my greetings. This isn't a, a, an impersonal group text. This is individual, personal, loving affection because that is the kind of love that John has impartially for anybody in the truth. They are in the same family on God's side and that is a bond that demands this kind of love. Third John, you could say, is a, is a tale of, of two loves. One is a love that is selfless and it accompanies and supports and upholds and advances the truth of the gospel. And the other is a love that is selfish, which is hardly love at all. And it opposes and hinders and attacks the truth of the gospel. But only one of those loves will prevail because only one is truly aligned with the will of God. And so GOC, don't waste this life that God has given to you. You know the outcome. You know that the church will prevail. You know the name of Christ will be glorified. It will be victorious. And so I urge you to join the ranks of guys like Demetrius and Gaius. Link arms with Epaphroditus and, and with Timothy and with Titus and Luke and Paul as fellow workers for the truth. Knowing that John says in, in 2 John verse 2, the truth abides in us and will be with us forever. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the truth of the gospel. Uh, we are so undeserving of your grace that would open our eyes to uh, behold your son for who he is, the, the saving son of God. And Father, as we think about the fact that we have a stewardship of this saving truth, I pray that you would help us to never have love far away. Help us to know that if we are going to claim this truth, if we are going to support this truth, if we are going to bring this truth to the world, it depends on us loving like your son loved. Loving selflessly becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross for sinners who hated him. Father, I pray that you would fix our eyes on that perfect example of love and help us to imitate him for the sake of your glory alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.